welcome to the Kalamo Pod, the one and only podcast on themes in classical Islamic theology, hosted by me, Hannah Erlwein. Ardent listeners of the Kalamo Pod will remember that in a previous episode, I talked about one of the trickiest theological problems discussed by the Mutter Kalimun, namely the proof that the world is created and that God is its creator. This theological problem had its origin in the many Quranic verses that describe God as the creator of the world. In addition to this, encounters with other faiths pushed the Mutakalimun to ask how precisely the Quran understood God's role as creator. So their discussion of this problem was partly a refutation of views they considered incorrect, and partly proof for the one position they wanted to defend, which was that God created the world at a point in the past from nothing. So, now the Mutter Kalimun had successfully defended and elaborated upon one central religious dogma, namely that God is the creator of the world. But they realized that this required them to investigate it in ever more detail. Sure, God created the world at some time in the past, that much was clear by now, but surely one did not want to say that after creating the world, God simply withdrew and let the world run its course. This was a preposterous notion for the Mutakalimun and went right against the way in which they understood the Quran when it said that, quote, God is the creator of all things, Allahu khaliku kulishe, or, quote, not even the weight of an atom in the heavens and earth escapes his knowledge. La yazubu anhu mithkalu daratin fi samawati wa fil ard. And finally, quote, Have you not considered how God sends water down from the sky and that we produce with it fruits? Alam tara ana laha anzala mina samai maan fa bihi thamarat? The Quran certainly gave the impression that God's creative activity went beyond bringing the world into existence in the past and extended to maintaining it in existence and to an active involvement in the occurrences which we witness around us. So God didn't lean back and watch the world go its course after he had created it, but he remained continuously involved in its course. This is the theory which the Mutakalimun wanted to defend. So they looked at natural processes around them, like at the wind which makes the leaves of a tree move, and they arrived at the conclusion that these natural processes are in reality God's direct creation. It is not the case, as we humans might think, that it is the wind that causes the leaves to move. This is basically an illusion, which results from the fact that we always observe these two events together. We wrongly interpret them as being causally related, which means when asking the question, why do the leaves move, we answer, because of the wind. 
But really what we should say, according to the Mutakali Moon, is because God creates movement in the leaves together with his creation of wind. So since all occurrences in nature are in reality directly created by God, side by side, it means that our perception of the world as being full of natural causes is an illusion. The Mutakalimun then took their theory to its rightful conclusion. If there is no causal connection between wind and the movement of the leaves of a tree, and if in reality God simply creates them directly and side by side, then it would not be absurd to assume that God could create the movement of the leaves without creating the wind, or he could create the blowing of wind without this resulting in the movement of the leaves. One of the most influential later Mutakalimun, who died in the 12th century, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, expressed this theory in the following words, and I'm quoting. Take as an example the quenching of thirst and drinking, satiety and eating, burning in contact with fire, light and the appearance of the sun, death and decapitation, healing and the drinking of medicine, and so on, to include all that is observable among the connected things in the sciences of medicine, astronomy, arts and crafts. It is within God's power to create satiety without eating, to create death without decapitation, to continue life after decapitation and so on, to include all these connected things. Take the specific example of the burning of cotton when in contact with fire. We, Mutakalimun, allow the possibility of the occurrence of the contact between fire and cotton without the burning, and we allow as possible the occurrence of the cotton's transformation into burnt ashes without contact with fire. Theoretically, all this is possible according to Razali and his fellow Mutakalimun. The only reason we never observe these sorts of strange phenomena, like that the sun rises but that it remains pitch black night, is that God acts with some regularity, that he has a habit or custom, in Arabic Ada, as the Mutakalimun called it. God made it his custom to always create the blowing of wind and the movement of leaves together, and in the same way it is God's custom to create light when creating the sunrise. This is how God always did it, and this is what we can expect him to do in the future. Razali expresses this idea in the following way. Sunrise without the emergence of light and all the other examples we have mentioned are possibilities that may or may not occur. But the continuous habit of their occurrence, repeatedly, one time after another, fixes unshakably and without any doubt in our minds the belief in their future occurrence according to past habit. So you see, when the Mutakalimun looked into the world around them, 
they saw God at work in all occurrences. And this meant that they denied natural causality. It was God who did everything that unfolded right before our eyes. But while the Mutakalimun were more or less in agreement about their denial of true causes in nature, they engaged in heated debates about another question. This was the question whether humans actually create their actions or whether humans' actions are God's creation. Not all practitioners of Kalam took the same view on this question. The different theological schools, which emerged over time, were distinguished by different views they held on all sorts of theological problems. In one problem where this difference between the theological schools comes out very clearly is precisely the problem of human and divine agency. This wasn't just some theoretical problem for the Mutakalimun, but a lot was at stake for them. So what was then the problem? In the religious worldview of the Mutakalimun, humans had a special place in the universe, not only insofar as God had sent his revelation to them and provided for them in this world, but also insofar as humans would be judged by God for their deeds. The Quran emphasizes time and again that one day the world will come to an end and that all humans will be judged by God for their behavior in this world. So, seeing the importance of Judgment Day, the Mutakalimun saw themselves confronted with a serious problem. Doesn't the promise of impeding Judgment Day require that humans are responsible for their actions? both for their good ones, for which God will reward them, and for their evil ones, for which God will punish them. It seems unjust for God to punish someone for an evil action if this person is not even responsible for it. But doesn't this imply that humans then must be real agents, real creators of their own good and evil actions? And doesn't this in turn imply that there are things in this world which are not created by God, namely the actions we humans perform? And finally, doesn't this then conflict with the Quranic verse that insists that, quote, God is the creator of all things, implying that literally all things are brought about by God? So, The Mutakalimun found themselves in somewhat of a dilemma. They had to make a decision whether it was God's absolute power and control over literally all things in the universe, including human actions, which they wanted to uphold, or whether they wanted to defend God's justice and thereby allow that humans really are the creators of their actions and not God. It was a decision to weigh between two of God's fundamental attributes, his sole creative power or his justice. And this is where we as ardent students of the science of Kalam can witness a major difference between two important theological schools. On the one side there was the Mu'tazila and on the other side there was the Ash'ariya. 
der Ashariya were the followers of Abul Hassan al-Ashari, whom we have encountered already a few times in the previous episodes of the Kalamopod. The Mu'tazila were also known as the people of God's uniqueness and justice, Ahl al-Tawheed wal-Adl, and their name was not a mere coincidence, but indicated where this group placed their focus on defending God's absolute uniqueness and difference from creation, as well as his absolute justness. So, in the debate about human and divine agency, you can imagine where the Mu'tazila positioned itself. They argued that God's absolute justice implies that God does not compel humans to perform good and evil actions, for which he then rewards or punishes them. Rather, Humans must be able to freely choose what sort of actions they want to perform in order for them to be held responsible. This implies, the Mortazila argued, that humans are true agents and creators of their own actions. You might decide for yourself whether the reasoning put forward by the Mortazila convinces you. The Ashariya, at least, did not find it very convincing. For their liking, the Mu'tazila had sacrificed God's control over all of creation to his justice. The Asharite Mutakalimun, for their part, were anxious to emphasize God's absolute power and control over all created things, and they also had a somewhat different understanding of what God's justice meant, so they didn't feel that one could say of God that he was unjust if he punished someone for an action which he had previously determined for this person. For the Mortazila, you can imagine, this was all simply unacceptable. In any case, since it was a major concern for the Asharites to uphold God's control over all created things, they argued that human actions are also created by God. Imagine you're holding an apple in your hand and you toss it up so it flies into the air. You might think that it was you who caused the apple to move. But according to the Asharites, that's not quite right. They argued that humans have no true independent causal efficacy and that in reality it is God who creates the movement in your hand and the movement in the apple, together and at the same time. Theoretically, it would be possible that you got ready to toss the apple into the air and nothing happens. The apple simply doesn't move because the movement of the apple is not actually causally related to the movement of your hand and God might, for whatever reason, refrain from creating movement in the apple. Also, the only reason you were able to move your hand so as to toss the apple in the air is, according to the Asherites, that God created the ability to do so in you in the very moment in which you moved your hand. If God had not created this ability in you, you wouldn't have been able to do anything. You might already have noticed for yourself that the way in which the Asherites thought about human agency 
is very similar to the way in which they thought about natural causality. They said that it was God who created all natural events and human actions directly. Nothing happens without God's creative activity. So here you see how the Asherites' concern to safeguard God's absolute control and power over all of creation unfolded. By the way, the Asherite theory of causality in nature, in humans and in God later actually found its way to Europe via translations of relevant texts in the 13th century and they left their mark on the philosophy of famous individuals such as René Descartes and Nicolas Molebranche. But as interesting as the reception of Islamic theological theories of causation by European thinkers might be, we shall put it aside for the moment and remain faithful to the classical Islamic tradition. It goes without saying that the Mutakalimun would continue to debate the problem of causality over generations and their discussions would get more and more detailed and intricate. Too detailed and intricate, in fact, in order to do justice to them in this episode of the Kalamopod. But the fundamental difference between the Mu'tazilite and the Asherite positions on human and divine agency would last over centuries, and it actually caused a rift between the two schools to such an extent that they started to quarrel over whether the whole enterprise of Kalam was doomed to collapse like a house of cards. But this story has to wait till the next episode of the Kalamopod, the one and only podcast on themes in classical Islamic theology hosted by Hannah Elwein. Thanks for listening and hear you soon. Mm-hmm.